0: You're listening to the LMCC Podcast, a ministry of La Mirada Christian Church in La Mirada, California. Here's Pastor Joe Barsha with this week's message. My name is Joe Barsha, I'm the youth and teaching pastor here at La Mirada Christian Church. And what you saw is true. There will be unlimited amounts of mac and cheese and chicken nuggets at the Youth Overnighter in a couple weeks. I know you're jealous, I know you want to pretend you're a junior higher income, and that's okay with me, because we all like to party, right? Um, But it is $10, there's a few spots left, so if you're youth or no youth, get them signed up, it is going to be awesome, they will not regret it, I promise. So last week, we began our United series, which takes us through the book of Nehemiah. And we're going through this book because I believe the timeless and extremely practical applications that we can draw from the book of Nehemiah can inspire this church to stand united and do incredible things within and outside these walls in the coming days, weeks, months, and years. And Nehemiah, it all really starts before Nehemiah was written, when Jerusalem's walls, along with the rest of the city, were leveled. By the Babylonians when they came into Israel and forced the Israelites into exile. And they were there for 70 years. Well, those 70 years of exile passed. The Babylonians were taken over by the Persians. And then the exile ended. The Israelites were now free to go back to Israel. However, as we discussed last week, virtually all the Israelites chose to do what? to stay in Persia because it became home to them, especially those who became wealthy and successful. And few, and I mean very few, were more wealthy and successful than Nehemiah himself, who rose in rank and became the cupbearer of King Artaxerxes, the king of all of Persia. As you may know, the cupbearer is the one who inspects the king's food and drink to make sure it's not poisoned. So, this meant that Nehemiah had the complete trust of the king. All right? He had complete trust of the king. He had money and he had power and he lived in a castle. Ate 100 miles away from tattered and torn down Jerusalem. Nehemiah had it made. And on top of that, Nehemiah had never been to Jerusalem, and he had hardly met any of those people who chose to go back. He hardly met any of them. But even though he was living a comfortable life, and even though he's never been there, and even though he'd never met the very few who chose to go back, upon learning that Jerusalem was in even worse shape, And that the few who went back were under constant attack from their enemies. What did Nehemiah do when he heard about the sad state of Jerusalem? He broke down and he wept. He was distraught. And that was when it became his vision to rebuild Jerusalem, beginning with its wall. Now, here's the question we asked last week. Why should a successful and wealthy man care about a town that he'd never been to and people that he'd hardly ever met. We learned last week that the sad state of Jerusalem broke God's heart, which meant it broke whose also? Nehemiah's. So Nehemiah fasted and prayed and ultimately asked God to grant him what he needed to fix it to fix the wall, to fix Jerusalem. And step one for all of this stuff to happen was a good meeting with his boss, King Artaxerxes. A good meeting that ended with the king giving Nehemiah his blessing as well as everything he needs to go to Jerusalem and restore it to its former glory. Oh, but this meeting, this meeting with the king, this meeting wasn't going to be fun. This meeting wasn't going to be easy. Because while Nehemiah had indeed earned the complete trust of the king, it does not mean that the king and Nehemiah were buddies and that Nehemiah could just casually ask him for personal favors. This is a very professional relationship. In fact, the king was still a king. And kings of this area and time of history were absolute dictators who thrived on their intimidating presence. Just like my wife's dad when Rachel and I were still dating, all right? (laughs) Very, very intimidating dictatorship presence. You see, Rachel is his precious firstborn, all right? And I first met Rachel when I was 16 and she was 14. So you can just Imagine how things went with her dad at first. You know the first words out of his mouth to me were? I said, hi, my name is Joe. He stuck out of his hand and said, hi, I don't trust you. Those were his first words to me. All right? That's how it went. But as intimidating and scary as it was at first, things got even more scary. When Rachel and I went on to date for over five years and started talking marriage. Because now it's not just, excuse me, sir, can I take your daughter to the dance? It's now, excuse me, sir, can I please marry your daughter, please? Right? That's even scarier than than before. And and I mean, obviously, it all worked out in the end. Rachel and I have been married for 13 years and we have two kids. But that meeting to ask him for her hand, just the thought of having it back then, horrified me. Still getting i bumps just thinking about it. <laughs> Horrified. Just like Nehemiah in this meeting with the king. First slide. Nehemiah 2, uh, Nehemiah 2 chapter verse 1. In the month of Nizen, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. It'll come. In the month of Nizen, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. All right. And just the first half of the first verse of their meeting, this is all we get so far, just from here, we find out just how nervous Nehemiah was. You see, his meeting with the king was in the month of Nizam. Well, chapter 1 tells us that Nehemiah started praying and fasting for this meeting with the king way back in the month of Kislev. Well, Kislev, when he started praying, is November. Nizan, when he had the meeting with the king, is March. All right? Nehemiah prayed and fasted and prepared over this scary and intimidating meeting for months. All right? For months. But now the day is finally here. Next slide. When wine was brought for him, who did that? Nehemiah is the cupbearer, right? When wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. All right, this is huge here. Let me tell you why. Even though Nehemiah had hardly ever left the king's side in years, he'd never left his side in years, hardly. Even so, he had never been sad in the king's presence once before. Never. Why is that? Because you weren't allowed to. Literally, it was the law, all right? In the courts of most ancient dictator king types, such as Artaxerxes, it was strictly forbidden to be sad in their presence, all right? The idea was that the king was such a wonderfully perfect person that merely being in their holy presence was supposed to make you forget about all your problems. This is no joke. This was actually real. No one was ever allowed to be sad in the presence of the king. In fact, it was not uncommon during this time that being sad in the presence of the king was punishable by death. But even so, Nehemiah could not help containing on the outside what broke his and God's heart on the inside. Isn't that incredible? What breaks God's heart broke his so much that he was willing to risk his life and be sad in front of the king. Now, thankfully, right, God isn't some power-crazed dictator that believes his presence should cause us to forget what breaks our hearts. However, Nehemiah's life-threatening show of emotion here is how visibly passionate We need to be over what breaks God's heart. If we want to do something incredible in and through this church, then we've got to be so noticeably passionate over what breaks God's heart that the moment people see us, they know something is on our minds. We want people to ask us, what do you want to do? Next slide. So the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. Now check out the highlighted part. (laughs) I was very much afraid. Why? The king noticed he's sad. Uh -uh Uh-uh-uh. Now, the Old Testament. Old Testament, guys, not new. I'm going to trick you here for a second. The Old Testament was written in what language originally? Hebrew, right, Greek's the new. Well, the highlighted portion here in the original Hebrew reads like this. I became very much dreadfully afraid. (laughs) Word for word, I became very much dreadfully afraid. Nehemiah was scared to death because the king immediately noticed his life-threatening sadness. The amount of horror... Nehemiah felt here had to have been the same amount of horror I felt about asking Rachel's dad for her first child's hand in marriage. All right, same thing. Okay? But Rachel, always, and I mean always, being the much more sensible, practical, and way better looking half of us, essentially told me to get over myself, to get over my fear. That's what she told me. She said, Listen, Joe, don't worry. I have a plan. I'm not sending you into this meeting unprepared, all right? You're going to ask him, and everything's going to be great, and we're going to get married. We're going to make sure every one of my dad's concerns are addressed before you even ask him the big question. Don't worry, all right? So speaking of Rachel's dad's concerns, he had exactly three, all right? And the three are are as follows. Am I going to have a full-time job to support the both of us? One. Two. Am I going to have a place ready to live for her and I when we get married? And three, the last one, the big and tricky one, needs a little context to explain, all right? You see, Rachel and I were two years apart in school, two years apart, and we wanted to get married one year after I finished college and one year before she finished college. You guys understand? So... Here's the problem, though. Education was, and always was, a priority for Rachel's dad. So he's always talked about how he's always wanted every single one of his kids to graduate before they got married. So here's the deal. If we want this bad enough, if we want to get married when she has still one year of college left, if we wanted to get his blessing we were going to have to come up with a convincing plan that would remove any obstacles and any doubt that would keep us from reaching our goal. And you guys, the same thing went with Nehemiah. So even though Nehemiah was very much dreadfully afraid, he was ready. And he said this on the next slide. May the king live forever. Looks like a little ancient sucking up, right? (laughs) Right? But it isn't. I mean, I don't think completely. Here's what I believe happened. The first thing Nehemiah did was honor the king in his position. The very first thing. Last week, last week we talked about how before Nehemiah asked God for a good meeting with the king, before he asked God that he could meet with the king and that it would go well, what did he do in his prayer? What was the very first thing he did? Anyone remember? He honored God. That was the first thing he did in his prayer. He honored God. And this here, along with this prayer in chapter 1, serves to remind us today that in our pursuit to do incredible things as a church and in this community, that we can never honor God enough. We never can. We can never honor the position that enables Him to give us what we need enough. It's impossible. In our prayers, in our requests, in our everyday lives, let us never forget as a church, to always honor the Lord. So after he honors the king, Nehemiah gets down to the reason for his sadness. Next slide. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Let's leave it there. Nehemiah's passion... For the city of Jerusalem is so evident and so overwhelming that the king automatically knows Nehemiah wants to do something about it because check out the king's reply on the next slide. The king said to me, What is it that you want? What is it you want? The king just said here, Well, what are you going to do about it? He didn't say, Oh, that's too bad. He didn't say, oh, you must feel awful. He didn't say, well, you got no time to worry about that because you're my cupbearer, so get over it. No. What did he say? He said, what do you want to do about it? What do you want? Nehemiah's words, Nehemiah's passion, Nehemiah's mannerisms here communicated to the king that Nehemiah needed to do something about the sad state of Jerusalem and the king instantly picked up on it. So the question for us is, what kind of response is our passion for this church and for the lost going to elicit from each other and from the community? Is our response going to elicit pity? Oh, that's too bad. And that's it? Is our response going to elicit apathy? I feel you, man. That's awful. And that's it? Is it simply going to elicit apathy? Oh, well, it is what it is because I'm comfortable as things are. Or is it going to elicit a call to action? What are we going to do about it? That is the united response. We need to elicit from each other and from the community concerning the loss, because it's only then that we united as a church are going to do something amazing. It's the only way. So once Nehemiah got the response that he needed from the king right here, Check out what he did before he shared his vision on the next slide. Then I prayed to the God of heaven. And I answered the king. Leave it right there. So before he answered the king, what did he do? He prayed one more time. Now this wasn't a long and premeditated fast and prayer session like Nehemiah did in chapter 1 that lasted four months. All right, This was an instinctual spur-of-the-moment, spot prayer. Nehemiah's premeditated private prayer life from chapter 1 has overflowed and given way to an instinctual on-the-spot prayer life and we should desire for the same. Our premeditated and private prayer sessions should be so commonplace that it spills over into an instinctual spur-of-the-moment spot prayer session, just like muscle memory. It should just be commonplace. And after Nehemiah's spot prayer session, finally comes the vision. Next slide. And I answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city of, in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. There was the vision. And the vision was, I want to rebuild Jerusalem. Rachel and I had a vision too, to get married. To get married over a year before Rachel's dad was even expecting. But, can I just go to her dad and say, hey, we want to get married, and oh, by the way, we want, to happen, we want it to happen a year earlier than expected, and we also want your blessing. And then leave it at that. Would that meeting go well? No. Rachel and I had to make sure we address any and all concerns with a solid plan first. And concern number one was, am I going to have a full-time job? Okay, a little context here. At the time, at the time, I was a senior in college at Hope International University. right, like a small Christian school in Fullerton. Yeah, and this was in February of 06 when this conversation was happening with Rachel and I. And I was set to graduate that June in like three and a half, four months. And I was, at the time, a youth intern at a large church gaining experience to become a full-time youth pastor upon graduation. Now, the church I was interning at did have, at the time, a full-time youth pastor job vacancy available. The only thing is, their one giant requirement was a Bible college degree. So back then I was thinking, well, by the time I earn my degree, the elders will have already found somebody else, and I'll just have to look for a job elsewhere with no real or immediate leads. The timing's just not right. And and then Rachel looked at me and said, so no real and immediate leads? That's not going to be good enough for my dad. (laughs) And so here's what you need to say, here's what you need to do. Joe, you need to go meet with the elders, you need to tell them you've been at this church for two plus years now, you need to tell them that you know the youth program, that you know the kids, that you know the church, and tell them you want to apply for the job now in good faith that you will be graduating in like three and a half months. That way, you can be interviewed now and not later when it's too late. And then she said, that right there is a plan my dad will get behind. And so what did I do? Exactly that. <laughs> I wrote the elders a cover, letter, a cover letter explaining all of that, and attached to it was my resume. Concern number one, check. Right? Now let's look at the king's first concern. Next slide. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take? And when will you get back? So his first question is, how long is this going to take? Now, did Nehemiah give the satellite dish guy answer? I'll be there sometime between 8 a.m. and next week, right? No, he didn't. Next slide. It pleased the king to send so. I set a time. I set a time, not a window. I set a time. And the only way you can give an exact time is if you have already planned out and know exactly what you intend to do with that time. You see, God wants to give this church the best chance to do something incredible. So don't you think He deserves our best plans? It goes both ways. With concern number one for Rachel's dad, checked, right? What are you going to do for work? The next concern was, where are you going to live? Now, in faith that I was going to get that job at that church, I scoured all the safe, dad-approved apartment complexes and neighborhoods within reasonable distance of the church. And I even looked for the ones within budget. And how did I know the budget? I did my research. I studied up on what full-time youth pastors right out of college earn at the churches of that size that I was interning at. And into that budget, I included projected utilities, groceries, spending money, and every college grad's favorite expense, school loans, right? And from there... I found three or four apartment complexes that fit all the criteria perfectly. Second concern, check. Let's look at Nehemiah's second concern 2 7. I, said, I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. You see what's happening here? Nehemiah is being brilliant and addressing the concerns of the king before the king even mentions them. Which tells the king what? What what Tells him what? That Nehemiah is doing his homework. That he knows what to expect. So what's Nehemiah asking for here? He's asking for a safe passage through foreign and enemy territory. Something that the king is definitely concerned with too because the last thing he wants is a war with neighboring countries. That was his cupbearer's fault, right? This is something the king would have addressed had Nehemiah not. And that safe passage that Nehemiah was asking for came in the form of authorized letters written by the king himself. As we go out and we do incredible things in this community through this church, we're going to encounter opposition too. So what's our version of safe passage? What's our version of the authorized letters from the king? I'll give you a clue. Our authorized letter from the king of kings, right? The Bible. We've got to have scripture in hand, and we've got to have it studied so we know how to use it. Okay? I'm not saying it's going to be easy. I'm not saying the enemy is just going to be a doormat because we're knowledgeable in the word. But if we're armed and ready with the right documentation, in the end, trust me, we will win. With a very real plan for a job and three or four apartment complexes that fit all the criteria needed, there was just one more concern. It was the big one. Rachel's dad really wanted his kids to be done with college before they got married. Rachel was set to graduate in 2008. We wanted to get married in 2007, which was just over a year from when I was planning to ask for Rachel's hand in marriage in 06, which was also just a couple months before I was set to graduate. This was going to be the big concern. How How do we convince Rachel's dad to change his mind on something that he's been saying for years now? Rachel then, of course, came up with the most convincing argument. She said, I'm going to be paying, I'm I'm currently paying to live in the dorms, and I'm paying to be on the school meal plan. If we get married the summer before my senior year, no more dorm fees, no more expensive meal plan. We'll be saving thousands and thousands of dollars. Plus, I'm willing to bet anything my grades my senior year will improve. A quiet apartment away from all the dorm life distractions is a great place to study and get homework done. Because what do you all do in the dorms at 3 a.m.? Not study, I'll tell you that much. We're watching Friends and eating Del Taco, right? That's what we're doing. So she's like, an apartment, far away, quiet. I'll get homework and studying done. Rachel really thought of everything. Now, let's look at the last concern of Nehemiah's plan to rebuild Jerusalem, which also has to do with resources and money. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. What does Nehemiah ask here? I need supplies. But here's the deal. As Rachel's dad's third concern was real bold and scary, so was this one. This was a bold, bold request. Because now, Nehemiah isn't just asking for time away, and he isn't just asking for protection on the way there. He's now asking the king to finance Nehemiah's vision. Now there's money involved. Asaph is the king's keeper of the king's royal forest, and the timber in that forest belongs to guess who? The king. This is a bold, bold request. How in the world did Nehemiah go from, quote, very much dreadfully afraid, in verse 2, to boldly asking the king to finance his vision? How did that happen? Nehemiah realized he's doing exactly what God wants. So why wouldn't God give him what he needs to fulfill his mission? And because Nehemiah was doing exactly what God wants, and next slide, because the gracious hand of God was on him, what did the king do? He granted every single one of his requests. With my plan in place, and with answers to all of Rachel's dad's concerns in place as well, it was the time for the meeting. I go over to their parents' house, I sit down on their couch, in early March of 2006, scared, shaking, and while it was one of the scariest conversations of all time, I addressed all the concerns and I was given the blessing to do this just a couple weeks later. Next slide. To propose to Rachel. And a little over a year later, in June 2007, when Rachel and I originally envisioned, we got married. Five days after the Ducks won the Stanley Cup. Let's go, baby. All right? It was an awesome year. And by the way, Rachel did earn her highest GPA in four years her last year of college. So she proved that last point right because she went to bed at 9 and not 3.30. Um, That's what the darns. You see, God cares for this church. God cares for the community of La Mirada. And God has a great future for us with a great plan that will get us there. And we will get there when our heart breaks for what breaks God's heart and when we fast by putting aside our temporary needs for the greater need. We will get there when we honor God the way He deserves and when we humbly confess our sins. We will get there when we have a sound, godly plan in place and we will get there when we have studied Scripture in hand. And we will get there when we ask God to give us what we need to succeed in fulfilling God's given mission and trust me when I say there is absolutely nothing too bold that we can ask for if what we ask for will transform the community of La Mirada and beyond in the name of Jesus God will grant us what we need if we do the proper things beforehand why do we need to stand united as a church and transform our community why Why do we have to transform our community in the name of Jesus? Because Jesus died on the cross for the community out there as much as he died on the cross for us in here. His blood was shed and his body was broken for them out there as much as it was for us in here. Jesus is for everyone. And it's breaking his heart every single day when those people don't know who he is. There's our vision. There's our vision. Let's know the Bible. Let's love like Jesus. And let's transform our community. So today, as we tangibly remember His death for humankind's sin through partaking in communion, let us remind ourselves of that. Of that truth, that Jesus is for everyone. After Jesus died on the cross for our sins, He rose from the grave so that we can worship a living and powerful God which is also why in just a few moments we're going to have a chance to celebrate Jesus' resurrection through praising Him in song. So during the next two or three songs, as you feel led, make your way to the tables in the back where you can partake in communion. You can go alone with your family or friends. You can partake in the back, in a circle somewhere else, at your chair, however you feel led. And if you need assistance by having communion brought to you, to your chair this morning, let us know. We'll make sure that happens. And maybe this morning, as Pastor Jennifer mentioned earlier, you need prayer. And I mean prayer for anything. We're here. Speech and judgment free. We just want to listen and pray. So please come up. There will be people right up front ready to pray for you during the next worship set. And finally, when you head to the tables for communion and for prayer, you can also bring your Connect and prayer cards as well as all your offerings and tithes. You can drop them off in the kiosk in the back. But remember, if you're new with us, or you've been coming for any length of time, you just haven't met us officially yet, hold on to that card, take it to the welcome table outside. Would you all pray with me now, as we bless this time of worship and communion? Dear Father, what Nehemiah did wasn't easy. In fact, it was downright scary. But Father, because he took all the necessary steps... You blessed his plan and you blessed his vision because his vision aligned with yours. May we do the same. May we do incredible things in and through this community and this church. Father, I just pray that you bless today's communion. May we understand what we're taking and what we're doing and may we live lives that reflect that we understand and believe in what we're doing and taking. We pray all of these things in your name. Amen. Thanks for joining us for this week's message. Be sure to check us out on social media at La Mirada Church and online at LaMoratachurch.com.